it is a pleasure to welcome Thomas Merritt to the program. Professor Merritt teaches chemistry and biochemistry and is a Canada Research Chair at my old school, Laurentian University in Sudbury, Ontario. Professor Merritt, Thomas, good morning and welcome. Good morning. Uh, thank you for having me on. I did not realize that Laurentian was your alma mater. That's pretty awesome. Well, it's kind of fun, too, Tom. I haven't talked to anybody from Laurentian in decades. So it's great to have you with us. And, and, and I told you, by the way, I told my audience moments ago that I had just poured myself my first black coffee of the morning. Actually, second. I had one at work at home before I came in. Uh, a coffee. The, 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 the reason you're with us this morning, Professor Merritt, is the piece you wrote for theconversation.com recently entitled The Biology of Coffee one of the world's most popular drinks, and you go on in your first paragraph to tell us Americans, for example, drink more coffee than soda, pop, juice, and tea combined. Is that the same for Canadians? Yeah, it's about the same. I mean, the numbers are super close. It, it, it is somewhere between really interesting and really disturbing. It's a lot of coffee. It sure is. Now, uh, just uh, uh, we were uh, Tim Hortons released a, a survey. They do this, of course, at the year end or looking for any kind of publicity they can get. All the restaurant chains ish- issue their year end uh, summaries. And Timmy says the most popular coffee they provide to Canadians on a daily basis is the double double, followed by the regular, which of just cream and sugar, and black coffee is number three on their list. Does that coordinate with what you're finding Canadians' habits to be? I, I think so. I, I actually really study how, how we respond. Well, I'm interested in how we respond to coffee. I, I haven't spent as much time looking at how we make those decisions as to what coffee to drink. Uh, you know, as a black coffee guy, it, it's always a little bit striking to me standing in line somewhere that the, the that we're really in the minority. Yeah. And, you know, the person in front of you, the person behind you, they're not, they're not drinking it black. Right. And uh, no sugar, no nothing, just black, and that's that, right? Well, that's what I'm sipping on right now. I just finished my second pot as the phone rang. Or, sorry, I made my second pot as the phone rang. So how is it then, because uh, I'm of a certain vintage, and I remember the cycles, Professor Merritt, going through since my university days in the 60s, for example. Coffee has gone through fits and starts of being really good for you, the, you know, the sort of toast of the town, so to speak, to, yeah. oh, gosh, you should really avoid that. It's really not very good for you. In fact, it could probably be dangerous. Now, we've had, yeah. both, we've had both of those cycles actually repeat themselves over the course of my lifetime, and I already tipped our listeners in Vancouver off this morning with a spoiler alert. It's good for you again. Is it likely to stay that way this time? You know what? It's a really great question. Um, I think that one of the reasons that, it, that we've gone back and forth on coffee is biology is really complicated. Um, and I mean, I know that that sounds sort of like a, you know, well, yeah, but I think that we really have to embrace that because we expect there to be easy answers when mm-hmm. they're just are not easy answers. Um, and so as we learn more about how we work as, as biological organisms, how you know, our biology works, we, we find there are complications we hadn't expected. Um, at this point, it looks like moderate coffee drinking is good for your health. And, and I think that that's the other reason that we go back and forth on whether it's healthy or whether it's not healthy is, you know, what, what does moderate mean? Right. Um, and, you know, if you have, I think that the numbers are about three or four cups of coffee a day that when we look at a, a lot of people, that the, the incidence of diabetes, the incidence of some cancers, the incidence of some things like Parkinson's are lower. Interesting. 
And so the other answer to your question, the other piece of the answer to your question is when we look at Canada, we'll get an answer. But if you look at me, if we look at you, we may not get the same answer. It just doesn't, you know, biology doesn't work that way. So when you have a large sample size, you can see small, subtle changes that are absolutely true. But it doesn't mean that, that you're going to live longer because you drink a moderate amount of coffee. Mm-hmm. My, my just have, and it just is sort of evolve and each of us treats it differently. My, uh, my only rule with coffee is never after noon. I cut myself, right? I cut myself off at noon because if I, even if I have a coffee like after supper, oh God, I'm up for three days. It's, it's, yeah. I, can't, I can't go to sleep. But before noon, bring it on. Interesting, yeah. huh? And, and, and that's that's a pretty common way to to, to address it. Um, I push it to two. Ah. Um, I used to push it later than that. I was like, you know what? I'm 52 years old. I, I don't need to keep playing these games. Um, it, we do. So I mean, one of the really interesting things is our body responds to coffee differently at different parts of the day. Yes. Um, and and there is certainly. I mean, there's the simple answer that if you you consume coffee, you bring in that caffeine, you do it early in the day, your body metabolizes, it breaks down that caffeine. And so by the time you go to bed, it's not there in your system. Right. And so the later that you do that, you drink the coffee, the longer that caffeine is going to stay with you. And that, that is absolutely true. But the way that we process coffee probably changes a little bit through the day. All of our metabolism does, and so I wouldn't be surprised if caffeine metabolism did the same thing. Can you walk us back to square one, as you do in your article, Professor Merritt, and talk about the components, what's in coffee, and and, and what these the various ingredients do for or against you? Yeah, and, and so the, the, that question, what are the ingredients in coffee, is one of the reasons that, that the first question you have, you know, why is it good, why is it bad, why do we keep going back and forth, the more we're beginning to understand how the different pieces that make up a, coffee, a cup of coffee work, the more we get a handle on what the, the, the medicine, the, the biological side of, of coffee is. So the one that everybody's familiar with is caffeine, and that is the, the big stimulant in coffee. Yeah. And then there are a whole suite of other molecules. We sort of broadly class a lot of them as antioxidants. And an antioxidant is a molecule that works to basically scrub the cell, scrub your body. And your body produces antioxidants naturally. That's just part of metabolism. And they're there to keep us healthy. We're living organisms. Because we're living organisms, our cells produce waste, and then our cells produce antioxidants to to combat that waste. And it ends up that coffee has a lot of antioxidants. And so a lot of the health effects that we see are bringing in those antioxidants. So, I mean, I think that makes sense. Mm -hmm, Yeah. But but if you're looking for a good boost of antioxidants, go eat a handful of, of blueberries. Uh, blueberries are, are phenomenal antioxidants. So coffee is amazing because it, it, it's this incredible beverage, and there is the, you know, that caffeine boost. There are some really nice aspects of coffee, like the fact that it's full of antioxidants, right. but there are better ways to get antioxidants well, you into know, your body. Uh, one, one, of the, one of the ways, uh, one of the th- byproducts of coffee production, and, I, and I'm, feeling a little, I'm feeling my oats this morning here, Tom, because I went to a coffee plantation last time I was in Hawaii. I'd never, oh. I'd never been to one before. And, so, and I got to, to, to meet the, the, the crews as they were picking the beans off the plants and so on. And, and after they, they take the outer shell, the red shell, off, off the bean, yeah. and, and, and the bean is what they process. The shells, they collect, and they make a drink out of them. That's a yeah. very, very intense antioxidant drink. I had no idea. Yeah. And apparently it's very popular among the locals, too. 
and, and I'm looking at a bag of it in my ca- in my cabinet right now, and I'm I'm completely ba- blanking on the name. You can drink it as a tea, as you just said, mm-hmm. um, and it, it's harder to find in North America. If you look for it, you can find it. Um, it has a very sort of fruity, almost floral. Uh, flavor to it. It doesn't taste like coffee because yeah. a lot of the taste of coffee comes from roasting the beans. That's right. Um, but yeah, there, there's that. Uh, there, there are the other pieces of the coffee plant, and and different components like different amounts of antioxidants are going to be in different parts of the coffee. So what else besides antioxidants and caffeine is kicking around in a cup of coffee? Yeah, I don't. I'm not exactly sure how complicated that answer is. Um, when we look at the biology, those are the two pieces that that jump out. Um, we're looking at antioxidants and, and we're looking at caffeine. There, there are other things that make up the caffeine, um, but I don't know that they actually make it into the coffee. So there's a thing called theobromine that, that's one of the pieces that, that, that's, that a coffee plant turns into caffeine. And it happens to be the stimulant in, co- in uh, chocolate, which is sort of an interesting thing. You know, you, you oh, okay. I often connect those two in my mind. Well, it ends up that chemically they're actually fairly connected and, and, the theobromine is sort of the caffeine of the um, of the, the the chocolate plant. Joined on the line from Laurentian University in Sudbury, Ontario, by Professor Thomas Merritt, who's written a piece entitled "The Biology of Coffee," one of the world's most popular drinks. And Tom, we did open up the phone lines, and regular listeners to this program already know that my email box is always open. It's Sterling at cknw.com, and I got a, I got a couple actually during the news. This one from Diana Lynn, who says, "Good morning. My doctor insisted I stop coffee. The caffeine constricts blood vessels, which may." raises blood pressure so my bp was sky high and that that blood pressure meds have played havoc on my kidney so it got complicated so no more coffee no more tea no more chocolate oops normal blood pressure do i miss coffee says diana lynn yes black coffee never i think that last part was a shot tom <laughs> that's not fair um, so i mean one of the things that we should definitely talk about is how different everybody's reaction to coffee is. And, and the, your, your listener is a really great example. So there are people that are super sensitive to, to coffee. Yes. Um, and, and, you know, I think because coffee is so ubiquitous, it's just everywhere. We lose track of the, or lose sight of the fact that caffeine is absolutely a drug, and it is the most consumed psychoactive drug on the planet. Okay, let me stop you there. Let me stop you there, just because this this just came in, and it's going to work. Anne in Richmond wants to know why does coffee sometimes give me the jitters, and this is right right where you're going with this. Yeah, and so don't 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 let me lose track of that because there there are a bunch of pieces of of this. So. People have been drinking coffee, and I think the estimates are something you know, like a thousand years or something. We we documented over a hundred years ago that co- that coffee was could lead to insomnia, mm-hmm. and so we have been looking to try to understand why and you know, what that connection is, and and we've got a pretty good idea of how it works. It actually mimics a neurotransmitter that's in your body, so a normal molecule that functions to actually allow you to go to sleep. And it goes in and it blocks the receptor for adenosine, this, this normally occurring or naturally occurring 
uh, molecule and it blocks the receptor. It keeps your body from allowing you to, to relax and, and calm down. And that leads to this sort of uh, perkiness. Ah. Um, and, but everybody responds a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. And so it ends up that those receptors in your body, your receptor, my receptor are, are almost identical, but the almost is super important. And there are people that have just a slight change in that receptor, and they're really sensitive to caffeine. Uh So your first listener's question was about blood pressure. There are all these other aspects of having this stimulant in your body in addition to waking you up. And if you're sensitive to that molecule, to that caffeine, then the complications can come in not because you get jittery, but because of things like blood pressure. Right. But even just the jitters, that's, that's not a trivial complication. That's really something that, that we have to, to take into consideration. And different people are going to respond differently. I think your second listener's question is really interesting because why does a cup of coffee affect me differently at different times? And the word, the word jitters, too, because, it, I mean, it's a cute word and it means you get a little shaky. But it also implies, strangely, at least to me, that that's, going, that's coming from your heart. Yeah, that's an interesting question. And, and I don't know that we've... I'll have to give that some thought. Okay. That, that's, that, things get complicated really quickly. Um, we, we don't necessarily understand why different, different people respond differently in the, in the terms of why is it going to influence somebody's pulse and, and not somebody else's. Um, those are really interesting questions that I think people are still trying to, to tease apart. The, the way that you react to that cup of coffee is a product of your biology. Sure. It's a product of your genetics which is driving that biology. It also, it, it, it matters when you had the last cup of coffee. How many cups of coffee do you normally have? So I usually get up in the morning, my wife and I make a pot of coffee, mm-hmm. and then we go about our day, and then I make a second pot of coffee when I start work, and then I usually wrap up things around lunch with a pot of coffee. Uh-huh. So I drink a lot of coffee. But it was, so my body is used to it, and you, you build up a certain amount of tolerance, which really is going back to this idea of caffeine is a drug, and you build up a tolerance, but you would also go through withdrawal. And so if you drink a lot of coffee and then you stop drinking that coffee, you get headaches, you get chills, and then classic withdrawal symptoms, and really reinforcing the idea that this is a drug that we need to take very seriously. Mm. And just because everybody drinks coffee doesn't mean that it's not a drug that you have to, to pay attention to. So, you know, why does it affect you differently one day than another? You know, we, there are a million things that are going on in, in our days, especially at the moment. There's just a lot of stress. And, you know, maybe thinking about, well, I should probably limit the amount of coffee that I'm drinking because I don't need to exacerbate. I don't need to make worse things like those jitters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and additives, whether it's uh, a sugar or a sugar substitute, uh, stevia, one of those uh, many uh, options that are available, or cream or, or milk, uh, do the additives uh, make any difference in terms of the impact of the ingredients in coffee? Do they accelerate or dampen down the effects at all, or is it just cream and sugar? That's a really great question, and I, I don't know the complete answer to that. I, I'm sure that things like that sugar, where you're going to get a normal sugar rush, that that's going to add into that, that caffeine rush. I'm going to have to go back and take a look and see what we know about when you add cream to your coffee. And, you know, it just it reflects my bias that your listener was teasing me about. <laughs> I think of a black cup of coffee. But, you know, as you pointed out from that Temi's research, most people don't drink coffee black. That's right. And so what does that do to the way we respond? I don't know. I know that, that um, I started drinking more lattes because I found that it, it 
sort of leveled out my stomach a little bit. And so mm. if I drink a lot of black coffee or a bunch of espressos, I get a grumbly uh, stomach. And if, if I mix in the occasional latte, that sort of took the edge off. Ah. I, I think a smarter thing to do would have been, you know, maybe have one fewer pot of coffee, but everybody has a different approach. Here's, a, here's an email just arrived. This is nothing like the first cup on a rainy Sunday morning in Vancouver. Animals are fed and walked, and I'm having my first cup listening to you too, says Dan, and he has a question for you, Tom. How is coffee decaffeinated? What's the point? Is there anything, <laughs> is, is there anything good left like antioxidants? Yeah, that is a super cool question, and I have to thank your, your listener for that. So I spent the last two weeks reading up on decaf coffee. Uh, I, I am expanding that coffee piece in, into a larger format, and one of the things I'm really interested in is you know, what happens to the chemistry of, of coffee when you take the caffeine out. Exactly. And, and if I could just, as a, a, an aside, I lived in Oregon for four years as a student, and I miss those rainy... Uh, Sunday morning. Mm-hmm. So I, I, you, you are taking me back to the early 90s here, so thank you for that. Um, so one of the really cool things about the research around coffee is a lot of the health infa- impacts that we see don't rely on caffeine. And so I think there was an assumption that the biology of coffee is really driven by that caffeine, but when we look at the biology of decaf, in many cases, it's the same as the biology of caffeinated coffee. So caffeine can be removed in a, in a number of different ways. I mean, the, the biggest hurdle that we have at the moment is decaffeinated coffee doesn't taste exactly like coffee. Here, here. It tastes like decaf. Yeah. But it tastes a lot better now <clears throat> than it did 10 years ago. True. I, I, you know, I have to tell you, there's some really interesting research to try to genetically engineer coffee that won't produce caffeine. Mm. So it would be caffeine-free instead of decaffeinated. And the potential there is that you wouldn't be able to taste that process at all. So there are a lot of interesting pieces that are coming into this. A lot of the health effects of coffee do not depend on caffeine mm-hmm. and, and are absolutely there. The number and the quality of the antioxidants and the other things that make up coffee after decaffeination varies depending on how you decaffeinated the coffee. And so, I mean, the initial, the the first ways that we were decaffeinating coffee 100 and something years ago were with benzene, which is essentially lighter fluid. And you can imagine the coffee just didn't taste right. And it was also like pretty massively carcinogenic. So that that's a bad combination. And benzene hasn't been part of decaffeination for oh, probably fifty or seventy-five years. But the the way the chemistry behind that decaffeination has evolved over that period of time. There's actually a, a company based in BC called Swiss Water Decaf uh-huh, that yes. uses an entire entirely water-based process. The the trick is to soak the caffeine out without soaking out any of the other flavors. And so the way that Swiss Water does this is that they create a water, it's called green coffee extract, that has everything in it out of the coffee bean. And then they can pull the, de- the caffeine out of that using carbon. And then they use that water, that, that green coffee extract, to progressively pull the caffeine out of beans, but keeping all the other flavor molecules in the bean. And it's a Vancouver and that, that company. And it's a pretty good cup of coffee. So yeah. my local roaster has a Swiss water decaf 
being that in the afternoons, I'll make a pot of that. Ah, interesting stuff. And Dan, it's a, it's a Vancouver company, as uh, our, our guest, uh, Professor Merritt, has, has suggested. So Google uh, the Swiss water treatment, and you'll learn a whole lot more about a, a local way to approach the decaffeination process. The, the, the piece, friends, it's a good one. Check it out at theconversation.com. The Biology of Coffee, one of the world's most popular drinks. The author is our guest, Professor Thomas Merritt from the Department of Chemistry and Biochemistry at Laurentian University in Sudbury, Ontario. Tom, great to meet you. Thanks for this. A terrific way to start my day, and our audience clearly loved your, your appearance with us. When you get that next batch of research done, let us know, and we'll do this again. I'll give you a shout. I'd love to do it. Thanks for the questions, and, and thank you so much to the listeners. Those are, I mean, people are paying attention. It's, it's really neat to have those questions. Yeah, great to have you with us this morning. We, we will do this again. Uh, have a great day. You too. Take care. All right. There's Tom Merritt, professor at Laurentian University in Sudbury, Ontario. Joined on the line by Jennifer McCracken. Jennifer is a senior manager and trustee with BDO First Call Debt Solutions. Jennifer, good morning. Happy New Year. Welcome back. Hello there. Happy New Year, Sterling. It's good to have you with us. I'm looking at the BDO Affordability Index 2020. This is something recent from your company. And and the summary is COVID-19 intensifies economic disparity in Canada. And you go on to point out that while one in five Canadians say they're better off, nearly two in five say they're worse off. Let's, Let's dive into some of these numbers here, Jennifer. Not very encouraging, but not at all surprising either, right? Oh, I couldn't agree more. We found in our affordability index that almost a quarter of Canadians have overwhelming debt and they feel financial uncertainty due to the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And when we think back to 2020, with the pandemic, we saw there was job loss, there's been wage cuts. Uh, We know a lot of Canadians took advantage of deferrals, so they're they're still managing a a pretty high level of debt. Mm -hmm. And uh, we now know also with CERB, the tax consequences are going to become due. So it's a new year. Tax time is approaching. And uh, we also know, saw recently that a lot of Canadians did receive notices to say they were not eligible for the CERB payments that they've received. So couple this with probably some holiday spending. Yeah, I think uh, 2021 is a year, I think, where a lot of Canadians are going to take stock and focus on their finances. At least I hope so. Yeah. Jennifer, you did mention deferrals. There was a point in 2020 where mortgage holders were allowed by their lenders to defer their payments for up to six months. Has that window now closed? Precisely. And so I, to be honest with you, Sterling, I'm getting a lot of calls from people that are feeling the impact of that because they, the payments were deferred. Longer term, it is going to cost more for those loans. But more specifically, the expectation now is that you are meeting your minimum payments. That time frame has ended. Right, okay. And you are now required to be servicing your debt normally as you would. So um, a lot of people are now feeling that pinch because their debt payments, in essence, have gone up. They were used to a period where it was lower. And if, if you are facing things like reduced income or other impacts to your budget, you're really going to feel that pinch now. And also, is there, uh, and you, you pay attention to these details, if you chose, because you were offered the opportunity by your lender, if you chose to take that six-month deferral to, to kind of, you know, keep things on, on a bit of an even keel, uh, and uh, was that, will that be held against you in terms of credit scoring or any of that stuff? Or, or was it such a wide-ranging blanket offering that it won't, because too many people accepted the offer. 
Well, that's a great question. A lot of people really thought about that before they took advantage. And lenders have advised that it would not impact your credit score. So in essence, they wouldn't report that you were missing payments. It was an agreement you made with that lender. But now that that period has ended, the expectation is you're meeting payments. Right. So what I can say is that anybody who's not been able to get their payments back to the amount that's expected from the letter lender, they're now going to potentially see an impact to their credit. So is there a way, for example, let's suppose now you, you took the deferral because your means were reduced and this gave you a chance to breathe, uh, readjust your finances to the new lower numbers and then carry on. Okay, so that period is over now and, and your new lower numbers, Jennifer, just aren't going to permit you to continue making mortgage payments at the same level. But you're not dumb and you're not trying to dodge your obligations. You need to renegotiate because you can't afford the mortgage payments anymore. Is that possible? I always encourage communication with your lenders. And so many financial institutions, they do want to hear from you and have those conversations before they're having to you know, put a property in foreclosure. Sure. So obviously, um, th- there is an opportunity to talk to your lenders, um, advise them, update them as to what's happening in your your financial life. And um, you know, they're going to assess that obviously on a case-by-case basis. But anybody who's feeling the way that you're describing, they need to talk to the bank, right. um, get into communication, explain your circumstances. And I do talk to a lot of individuals, a lot of clients that prior to doing something with me and, and dealing with their debt more formally, they have done that. They have talked to them. And a lot of, I'm hearing this more regularly now, and it's probably in light of the pandemic. A lot of individuals are saying that their lenders were really good to work with them. And and I think there's a sense that uh, this obviously has been a cataclysmic event for Canadians, and it's had such a significant ripple effect across our financial life. It's affecting individuals that operate businesses, small to medium-sized businesses. And a lot of people, their finances, if you run a business, your personal finances are intertwined with that. So Mm -hmm. A lot of lenders are used now to having these conversations. So whether it's your mortgage, whether it's your unsecured debt, if you're operating a business and you have a main lender that has, has you know, lent money to you to service, to have an operating line, for instance, around your business, this is the time now to have those conversations because there's nothing worse than going back to them and saying, well, three months ago this happened. And, you know, from their perspective, they're going to say, well, why didn't you let us know when this was happening? So we could have, you know, they could have probably worked with you. When you let things get to a state where, it's so far gone. There's, you don't really leave the lender a lot of options if things are so dire. So get on the phone and have those conversations now if that's a concern. Well, that's a really good piece of advice. And we've heard this from lawyers as well. Same kind of thing and uh, in, in, in a similar context, dealing with landlords, for example, and tenants and, and those sorts of uh, situations where, again, uh, finances get stretched pretty thin and affordability becomes a real concern. And rather than hiding and, and uh, just hoping that uh, this will all go away eventually, uh, it, lawyers and, and trustees like yourself, the rec- the, the, the the constant, the common denominator in, in every comment, Jennifer, is the same as you just said. You need to reach out. You need to let you, whoever you're owing money to for whatever reason, you can't hide from them. They know where you are. So, <laughs> so rather, than, rather than, you know, sort of being an ostrich about it and just if I can't see you, you can't see me, uh, you need to establish a line of contact. You need to let them know that you're there, that you're trying 
trying. You're not able to, you can't cut it right now, but not for lack of trying. You need to tell them that. Oh, absolutely. And I find for a lot of individuals, too, even when they're putting formal plans together to resolve their debt, they'll still communicate that as well and say, look, I'm talking to a trustee. I'm working on a plan to deal with my debt. So even if it gets to the point where we're in a situation where somebody is doing a bankruptcy or proposal, it doesn't hurt to let them know because at the end of the day, if they think you're putting them on ignore, that's a bigger flag than when they know there's somebody who's really trying to find a solution to the financial difficulty that they're in. Need to take a break, but just before we do, would those reaching out, would that attempt to connect and an attempt to explain, to sort of bridge the communication gap, also possibly result in a less harsh uh, credit score? You know, that's something certainly I would encourage people to request when they're talking to those lenders. There's no guarantee. So if somebody's going to be offside on a payment agreement or on a contract, the lender does have the ability to report that. And keep in mind, a lot of reporting to credit agencies is automated. So Mm -hmm. I'm not saying it's it's not a possibility, but certainly, and I've personally had instances where I've been able to resolve disputes on my credit score. So it, it may take more time and you may have to go through various levels, but I would encourage individuals that are are really focused on maintaining their credit score, maintaining that positive credit history to make that ask. You know, you're not, it doesn't hurt to try. And if you don't ask, you don't get. So certainly it, that is a very good suggestion for the listeners All if right. they're facing that right now. Indeed. Your communications is the key. Jennifer McCracken with us. Jennifer is a licensed insolvency trustee and senior manager with BDO Debt Solutions here in Vancouver. And Jennifer, we were talking about uh, before the break about communication and how important it is regardless of what the debt situation may be, whether you're behind on your credit card payments or your mortgage payments or whatever the situation may be, uh, the, the, the key to avoiding uh, the kind of spiral that so many people find themselves in is talking to the people you are indebted to. But a, a lot of us don't don't get to that until we've we've sort of accumulated uh, enough debt that there's a problem. So then it, it, then we sit down and we go, oh brother, uh, you know now I'm, I'm I'm skipping the phone bill this month so I can pay the gas bill and and you start leapfrogging and, and making minimum payments and starting to uh, uh, not open letters that you know are from lenders because it's containing a threatening uh, uh, a bit of warning or something and you really you really isolate yourself. So then you get to a point where you you know that they, we don't have debtors prison anymore, Jennifer, but we do have a lot of a lot of problems for people in debt. When should someone call a trustee? Uh, because you talk about bankruptcy and uh, the uh, other forms of formal debt repayment, such as a consumer proposal, but that seems so far away uh, from someone who may not have a lot of debt, but still is drowning in whatever debt they have. I agree with you, Sterling. And I think when an individual feels that their financial situation is overwhelming, if you feel that your debt is overwhelming, that is the time to call a trustee and find out what your options are. Keep in mind, a licensed insolvency trustee will always offer a free confidential meeting. So that advice is there for you. Mm. And you think about the warning signs. You mentioned missing utility bills, not meeting your minimum payments. These are all warning signs. And we also know CIBC does their poll every year for the 11th year in a row, they've reported that the number one priority Canadians reported 
is paying down debt. Mm-hmm. That was 20% of Canadians. The least uh, important priority that they reported was having a long-term savings plan. So if that gives you any sense of the financial situation we have a lot of people in across this country, we know that they would benefit now from making that call. And that's why at BDO we say we call ourselves first call debt solutions. We know that making that first call is overwhelming and it's scary. But, you know, at the end of the day, you're going to get that advice. And if you don't need to do anything now, it's a matter of tweaking your budget, talking to the lenders, giving you the advice. A lot of times I even email people some language they can use if they're emailing their lenders or dealing dealing with an auto loan. Uh-huh. You can get that advice from a trustee now. You don't need to worry. You may not need to do something like a proposal or bankruptcy, but, you know, God forbid, we know that there's the future holds more with this pandemic. We're seeing curfews. We know that it's affecting businesses. We may see things change. And so getting that advice now, understanding what your options are, you can now deal with the situation six months from now or three months from now if something changes. You will know what your rights are. You'll know what your creditor's rights are. And you're that much more informed and equipped to deal with the situation that you're in. And you get to a point, too, uh, when when all of this uh, begins to spiral. And I use that word deliberately because it, there, it develops a sort of momentum of its own, all of this bad stuff in your life, that it's, it's, it can easily feel like it's sweeping you out of control and almost uh, just, it's like a vortex. It just sucks you up and makes you disappear. Uh, and so when you get that, that kind of panic... Uh, going on in your life and you get these phone calls from threatening collection people and and letters indicating we're going to take it to court if you don't do this that or the other thing you start to feel um isolated and like this is you're the only person in the world that this is happening to uh, and and that's the important time to find out among other things that you're not the only person in the world and as you suggest Jennifer where exactly do I stand here I know I'm I'm not I'm not in great shape but am i am i really as badly off as i feel i am and generally speaking no once you get a grip right Oh, you know, certainly one of the most common things people say after they meet with me is, oh, I feel so much better. The other thing people say is, I really wish I had phoned sooner or uh-huh. I had done this sooner. And so that sense of what you're referring to there is the shame, the embarrassment, the feeling that you're alone, that makes you go inward. And so this is a time where, you know, we really need to encourage people to not be ashamed and embarrassed of their situation. I would love to know who has not been impacted by the pandemic financially. So there's a sense of, look, you are not alone. We've all been suffering through this unprecedented time. So this is all the more reason to get that advice that you need on what to do specifically around your debt. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we have people who go to personal trainers or hire a dietitian to fix their diet. Go see a professional to talk about your finances. And this is also the time now, let's highlight the fact that let's build out the financial plan for 2021. If there ever was a year to do the plan, this is the year. And so what are your financial goals? What are the short-term, long-term goals? What were your successes? What are your challenges? And build out the dreaded B word. I'm not talking about bankruptcy. I'm talking about the budget. Oh, budget. Oh, good. Uh, build okay. out that budget and review it monthly. And, it, and if you're doing all of these things, if things don't improve or there's some other unexpected change, you, can, you know that you've done everything you can to avoid a situation like if you have to do a bankruptcy or a proposal, but at least you tried and you are also, you're improving your financial literacy skills when you do these things. And that's the goal. It's a learning curve. It's a process for us over our lifetime. 
start now. If you haven't done so before, start with your financial plan now for 2021. Well, it's interesting because the financial, the, the pandemic has caused a lot of Canadians to sit down and out of sheer necessity and, and, and sometimes dramatically reduced financial cash flow. They've had to sit down and go, wait a second now, we've only got X coming in and here, here's what we owe. Oh my gosh, we got to square that circle. So a lot of us out of necessity have already started doing that, but you're suggesting that if you haven't, it's a great opportunity to just, uh, again, what's coming in, what has to go out, and where are we after all of those numbers get, get crunched, right? That's correct. And there's lots of great uh, online tools. So certainly at BDO's website, solutions.bdo.ca, we have a lot of online calculators for, for debt repayment. You can go through a schedule to find out how quickly can I retire my debt and then use the goal setting tool. You got to set goals and, you know, be positive that you're going to achieve those and measure those. So go online, find that information and start the new year fresh. All right, Jennifer, that address again, friends, is debt solutions, plural, dot BDO dot C-A. Jennifer McCracken, nice to have you aboard again. Happy New Year. Thanks for this. We'll talk again soon. Yes, thanks for having me, Sterling. There's Jennifer McCracken from BDO First Call Debt Solutions. In his book, The Keys to the White House, Professor Alan Lickman came up with 13 keys that would predict how the American people pick their president. The model has predicted every election correctly since its inception. Professor Lickman was with us in the fall a few months ago talking about the keys and making a correct prediction again that Joe Biden would win the election. Professor Alan Lickman is back with us again from Washington, D.C. and American University. Not so much on the prediction side of life today, Alan. Welcome back. It's uh, what lies ahead as you put on your historian hat and join us here in Vancouver, Canada one more time. Welcome back, sir. It's good to have you with us this thank you so much uh we've we've uh, you've correctly predicted the election had you anticipated in any way alan the way the trump uh presidency was going to end i can't say i predicted it with precision but i certainly was not the least bit surprised in 2016 in my september washington post interview where i predicted trump's win I also predicted that he would be impeached and, of course, was widely derided at the time. And now it looks like he may well be the only president to be impeached twice. And my prediction of impeachment was based upon my full analysis of his entire career, in which I spotlighted uh, in my April 2017 book, The Case for Impeachment, right at the beginning of his administration, Mm -hmm. the traits within Donald Trump that explain what happened this past week. I pointed out that Trump had no respect for the law, that he had flouted the law for decades, that he was uh, an inveterate liar who lied simply to serve himself. After all, he burst into politics on the back of the biggest, most protracted, worst lie in American history that our first African-American president wasn't born in the United States. That's right, yeah. I also pointed out that Donald Trump cared only about himself and no one else. So I was not the least bit surprised 
uh, by the transgressions of this past week. Now, uh, what do you think? Uh, apparently, articles of impeachment have been drawn up as we speak, and uh, the lawyers uh, for the Democratic side of the House, at least, working feverishly to uh, have something presentable for first thing tomorrow morning. How likely, Alan, is it that this will actually go forward with some resolution? I think it's quite likely that the House will vote an article of impeachment. The biggest question is whether any Republicans will join in. And then the critical question is, what is going to happen in the Senate, which has the authority to try the president? It may well be the Senate will not get its act together and to uh, try the president and take a vote until after he leaves office. But that doesn't make the Senate trial and vote irrelevant. There is precedent for this. William Belknap, uh, Ulysses S. Grant's secretary of war, was tried uh, on articles of impeachment after he had resigned. And a trial for the president, even after he's left office, is not irrelevant because the Senate could vote to bar him from ever seeking public office again, thus precluding a 2024 run for the president or any federal office. Uh, Mr. Biden uh, has decided, has said in uh, in his wisdom and with his focus on becoming the next president, uh, when confronted with questions regarding the implementation of the 25th Amendment or the possibility of a second impeachment, basically said, and I'm paraphrasing, basically said, that's up to Congress. I have other things on my mind. And he did add, however, that in his estimation, the best way to be rid of Donald Trump is just basically hold your breath for 10 more days and it'll be over. Is that a a, a workable solution? It's not a workable solution. Uh, I understand why Biden took the position he did. And it's quite right. He doesn't want to be seen as a vindictive He said he's trying to work across the aisles and bring Americans together. But I do think 25th Amendment is probably not going to happen. And impeachment is the right thing. Donald Trump has never been held accountable for anything in his entire life. Somehow he walked away from five bankruptcies, kept up his lavish lifestyle, and amazingly took hundreds of millions of dollars in tax deductions. You know, he got away with obstructing the Mueller investigation with collusion with the Russians, with shaking down uh, a foreign power to rig the election. It's very important that Donald Trump be held accountable, at least through impeachment. And it is very important that the Congress make a clear and unequivocal statement that what Donald Trump has done is wrong and dangerous and is a high crime or misdemeanor. You mentioned bankruptcies and, of course, referring to Mr. Trump's personal business affairs over the years. He has a very casual, cavalier attitude towards debt. I don't know that much calculation or or, um, uh, observance is going on right now in terms of the United States national debt. But I would suspect once the numbers start to be tallied, it's going to be pretty staggering. Are you aware of of any um, uh, unprecedented levels of indebtedness because of this administration? We are going to add trillions of dollars to the debt in actual dollars. It is by far and away the record. And except for wartime, it is also a record in terms of the percentage of the GDP. What I worry about, though, is the Republicans who 
happily gave a huge tax cut, mostly to the rich that balloon the deficit, are suddenly going to be born again deficit hawks and use the deficit to put a crunch on social programs like Social Security, Medicare and Medicaid Mm -hmm. that help ordinary and less affluent Americans. The uh, notion of the check that the Republicans wanted to be no more than $600 per individual citizen now being upped to 2000 per citizen, interestingly, at the behest of President Trump and uh, certainly Pelosi and the Democrats were looking at that number from the beginning. Is it likely when Mr. Biden assumes office that there will be a second set of checks to the tune of two grand going out to a lot of Americans? I certainly hope so. Uh struggling Americans need it. And, you know, if we're going to balloon the deficit by cutting corporate taxes and cutting taxes for the more affluent, uh, we certainly should be willing to do so to help out uh, struggling Americans. And the pivotal uh, event that may make this possible is the two extraordinary victories for the Democratic senators in Georgia, which gives the Democrats' 50 seats enables Vice President uh, Kamala Harris to break the tie and gives essentially, although very narrowly, Democrats control of the presidency, the House and the Senate, which makes a lot more likely uh, robust stimulus. Well, uh, and also, uh, as you've already pointed out, Mr. Biden, very interested and a veteran of uh, both the House and certainly the Senate, a veteran of the Hill, uh, knows how to, to, to do that cross-aisle uh, bipartisan uh, uh, moves to affect legislation that works for everyone, seems to be quite intent, quite determined, in fact, to reestablish some degree of bipartisanship and, and in terms of moving the ball down the field. Do you think he's going to be successful in that regard you know i think his greatest ally in enabling him to reach across the aisles has been donald trump yes there is a faction within the republican party that supports uh, the donald trump instigated insurrection or any breach of democracy or that donald trump may engage in but there's also a faction within the Republican Party that is absolutely disgusted and appalled by Donald Trump's actions. One Republican Senator, Lisa Murkowski, even called upon Donald Trump to resign. Mm-hmm. He was, he's been denounced by other Republican senators like Romney and Ben Sass. So, yes, I do think, you know, Donald Trump utterly inadvertently has given a big boost to the Biden presidency. People are looking for something different. Alan Lickman joining us on the line from Washington, D.C., American University historian and author. Uh, Alan, a couple of quick questions for you here. Uh, Nancy Pelosi says uh, a couple of days ago she had a conversation with the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Army General Mark Milley, about protecting the nuclear codes from what she described as, quote, an unhinged president. Have you ever heard Uh, such a measure being taken by a representative of Congress with regard to the president and the nuclear codes? Never. Although in the final days of Richard Nixon, his uh, Secretary of Defense did reach out to military commanders because uh, they were concerned uh, what Nixon might do in the last days and hours of his doomed 
presidency. Mm -hmm. So that really is the closest analog to what we have today. I haven't asked you point blank. I uh, kind of saved it for the second half of our conversation. I would just appreciate your taking a few moments and uh, just walking us through what went through your mind on Wednesday. You were pretty close by there in D.C. watching all of this insurrection at the Capitol. Several things went through my mind. First of all, as you reap, so shall you so this invasion of the capital which we hadn't seen in any analog since the war of 1812 when you know a foreign enemy burned parts of washington mm-hmm. this was not only instigated by donald trump on that morning it was instigated throughout his presidency throughout his presidency donald trump has been attacking his political opposition as illegitimate as dangerous. He has been spreading the most pernicious kinds of lies and has been trashing our democracy. So this was, in a sense, the tragic but logical culmination of the most disloyal presidency in the history of the country. And of course, I was so dismayed to see violence and mayhem And my heart went out to all of those who injured or lost their lives in this incredibly unnecessary, undemocratic, un-American attack on the citadel of our democracy. Do you? You know, I have to tell you, my family is worried about our own safety. You know, we live right outside of Washington D.C., and this is all unpredictable and unrestrained. Do you think that the consequences, uh, they're talking about uh, several people having been arrested, uh, people who were identified easily uh, by CNN and others, uh, the FBI is already uh, conducting investigations and making a few arrests. Do you feel or believe uh, that the consequences for this behavior will be severe? I'm very worried that it won't be. You know, another thing that appalled me in this invasion of the Capitol is how unprepared Uh, law enforcement was. You know, law enforcement was much tougher on peaceful demonstrators in the Capitol that Donald Trump and William Barr had attacked with uh, chemical irritants and billy clubs and police on horseback just to clear a path so the president could have an absurd photo op in front of a church he never attended or barely and a Bible he never read. It is astonishing that there was so much tougher police enforcement presence there than to protect the Capitol. And so far, I have not seen nearly enough of a response. Again, we've seen more of a response uh, in terms of arrests uh, in largely peaceful Black Lives Matter protests than we've seen here. I understand uh, at least one of the persons arrested was allowed to be released on his own recognizance, just walked free. I haven't seen anything approaching uh, an appropriately forceful response. Maybe we'll get it in the next few days, and I certainly hope so. But so far, I've been appalled by the lack of a defense of our capital and the lack of a strong uh, law enforcement 
and prosecutorial response afterwards. I think in the days ahead, we're all going to find out that someone was uh, told to look the other way. Here's a question for you, an email question that just arrived in my box uh, for you. If Donald Trump is the devil incarnate, what policies did he offer that convinced 75 million Americans to vote for him? You know, that's an incredibly uh, good and difficult question. One and the most obvious answer is our country is highly polarized between uh, the right-wing followers of Donald Trump and the more liberal followers of the Democratic Party. But let's not forget that 7, 8 million more people voted against him. And I think also Donald Trump, you know, his lies work. You know, there's a lot of psychological evidence that if you tell lies often enough and forcefully enough, people will come to believe them. And I think, you know, obviously a huge swath of American voters believed Donald Trump's lies, that he was standing up for ordinary Americans against the elite and that he was fighting against the socialists. Uh, within the Democratic Party. I also think, quite legitimately, there are a lot of Americans who believed in his policies, who, like Donald Trump, you know, believed in uh, deregulation, Mm -hmm. big tax cuts, and uh, social conservatism. Uh, The Democratic Party, and we have an abundance of evidence to prove this, has a tremendous capacity for self-destruction. Before Mr. Biden is even sworn in, we're already seeing internal strife from the progressive wing versus the moderates, etc. As we we go forward, uh, Mr. Biden, again, uh, with his experience in management of politicians and knowing the mindset as well as he does, is he going to be able to cobble together this weird... Uh, collection of representatives and get something done? That is the challenge for this president. You know, Joe Biden, he's not a John F. Kennedy. He's not a Barack Obama. He's not a great orator. He's not an inspirational, charismatic figure. But as you've pointed out, he may be the right person at the right time. You know, he is a master of legislative craftsmanship. He has relationships across the aisle that perhaps no other political figure in American life today has. And maybe most importantly, he is a non-threatening figure. Mm -hmm. He is kind of an empathetic person who really doesn't frighten even his political opponents. And uh, you were surprised at all by the uh, reaction of people like uh, Merkel in Germany and Trudeau in Canada and other international leaders after this uh, event in the Capitol on Wednesday, basically saying, uh, well, Trump was responsible for that and and how shocking it all was. The international reaction to Trump, uh, who made a lot of enemies around the world. Exactly. (laughs) You know, there's no love for Donald Trump among our Democratic allies, who he's demeaned and diminished throughout his four years as president, greatly weakening the system of alliances that have been built up since the end of World War II. Plus, they're right. You know, they haven't made this up. This is uh, one of the two greatest transgressions, worst transgressions in presidential history. The only other one that may be worse was also committed by Donald Trump, and that is 
lying about the pandemic, failing to respond to the pandemic, and as a result, at least being partially responsible for the deaths of tens of, 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 of thousands of Americans. Alan Lickman, I have to leave it there, sir. I'm fresh out of time and, as always, very grateful for yours. It's good to have you on again. It's been a few months. Uh, perhaps as, as, as life unfolds, we'll check back with you and, and see how, how you, your view of life continues. Alan, thanks for this. Great to have you on. Sure, you know where to find me. Take Indeed care. we do. Alan Lickman joining us from American University in Washington, D.C. And our guest this time around is Dominic Vogel, founder and chief strategist with Cyber.sc. Dominic, good morning. Welcome back to the program. Great to have you with us today. Thanks, Sterling. Good morning. Well, it's good to have you with us. And I wanted to talk about a whole lot of stuff here this morning. But before we do, I just want to let our listeners know when Dominic's around, lots of people have lots of questions. So our phone lines are already open, anticipating just that. 604-280-9898. 604-280-9898. Where to start? Well, let's start with something that happened recently uh, on a uh, in our own backyard that caught an awful lot of attention in the local media, Dominic. And that's the translation ransomware attack that's just a few weeks old. Can you walk us through what happened there? Well, yeah, and, and the, like you're saying there, Sterling, you know, it's, it, the story goes back to uh, December, you know, when at a high-level TransLink's IT systems were uh, held for ransom, uh, and they were unable to you know, recover, I guess, fully from that. And we're still they're still dealing with that. Uh, I guess a month, month and a half later, right? Um, so you know, it, it, it has a lot of people worried. You know, we've seen that in the in the news as well with uh, Translink being unable to pay their uh, their staff and the bus drivers uh, because it's affected the, the payroll system. So there's definitely a, a lot to be uh, concerned about. And I know from a technical perspective, Translink is doing uh, everything they can to restore as quickly as possible. But um, I think one of the lingering questions, which uh, I've been talking about, is from a PR perspective, could TransLink be a bit more transparent about what they know, what they don't know, what they've done? Um, again, based on the fact that they do take trend, uh, they take taxpayer money, so sure. I think there's a certain level of transparency that should be expected. I agree, and and that's why I suppose many of us are as surprised as we are, Dominic, that it would happen to a company that does rely not on just passenger fare revenues, but they get tax subsidized mightily every year. And with all of that, one would think that they would have, have a, a, a cyber security system like uh, the equivalent of Fort Knox, for crying out loud. <laughs> yeah, you know, and then there goes with the, with that certain expectations. And the thing I, I want to um, you know, make your your listeners uh, aware of is understanding that in in this digital age, that organizations will experience data breaches. You know, we need we need to move beyond the um, the mentality of accept, uh, thinking about what's referred to as zero breach mentality. Right. That was what that was sort of accepted standards. I'm going to say in the early 2000s, but now it's 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 uh, the course of of uh, and the risk that goes with a digital presence. Um, you know, breaches will happen. The expectation and the mindset shift should be that we expect a certain level of resilience. So by resilience, we mean that these organizations should be able to recover from cyber attacks fairly quickly, and that they should be very transparent again in terms of what happened. Um, what they've done and, and what's left in, in terms of challenging assumptions and, and what have you. So sort of shifting from focusing fully on prevention, but focusing more on resilience instead. Uh, Dominic, just from the, from the point of view of the bad guys, um, uh, did they, did, do we know, and you're talking about transparency or the lack thereof in the TransLink situation, do we know, for example, how much money was paid as ransom demanded by the bad guys in this case? And in, in a more general way, 
Is it profitable for those hackers who conduct these ransomware attacks? For, for sure. And I'll, I'll answer the, 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 the last part of that question first. R- r- ransomware uh, and cybercrime as a whole, uh, it surpassed the drug trade as being the most profitable crime in the world. Wow. You know, it's, it's safer for criminals to do. It scales very, very well. Uh, it has a heck of a return on investment. Uh, and it's much safer than, you know, robbing a bank or, you know, trying to smuggle drugs <laughs> kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so it, it, it's, uh, it's, uh, it, it, it's a crime that's here to stay, and especially as so much of our physical world has gone into the digital world. It only makes sense that digital crime you know, goes up um, in, in, in terms of uh, uh, attention. So it is very, very profitable. And one of the reasons as well is that most small and mid-sized organizations, so I'm talking about companies under, let's say, 500 employees. Okay. Um, so this doesn't, I'm not talking about trends, I'm just talking about your, your average small and mid-sized business. Again, SMBs make up the majority of uh, businesses in, in this country of sure. ours. And the vast majority of them are simply not prepared to deal with cyber risk. Many of them don't understand the, the, uh, what cyber risk even means. And uh, uh, many of them just think, well, you know, we trust our IT guy or our IT service provider. Uh, and then that can, uh, there's a level of due diligence, which business owners and many uh, directors and executives, um, they just, they're not, they're not aware, you know. So I always tell people that if you're an SMB owner, if you're in the small mid-sized business space, um, the cyber risk is one of the most pressing risks facing your organization. You know, it's, it's something which needs more attention. Yeah, and I would suppose, though, too, Dominic, in a time of pandemic and reduced cash flow, a lot of those concerns have to be set aside. This would be the rationale because I simply can't afford to go there right now. I need to keep the lights on and I'm going to have to risk a cyber attack. I can't afford the extra uh, security or prevention it, uh, security. Is it, is it expensive to be secure? Uh, the uh, no, uh, short, short answer is, is, is no. And, you know, you bring up a really good point again about the, uh, and, you know, uh, during the pandemic, you know, so many, uh, small mid-sized businesses are you know stuck between a rock and a hard place. Really trying to figure out where to allocate you know the, the, the few dollars that they do have, and it's introduced this very interesting um, almost squeeze point in which as as uh, smaller smaller mid-sized organizations need to survive during the pandemic, many of them move from being fully physical to being fully virtual uh, or more virtual and more digital, and in doing so have increased their cyber risk. Yes. So it's this it's almost a strange paradox of sorts in which. In order to survive, they need to become more digital, but yet in the same token, they're not able to secure that that digital transformation to the way that that's needed. You know, so um, and when I thought when, to answer your question there about is it is it expensive, um, I would say that it, it's it's it could be. You know, if if you want to spend the latest and greatest and you know spend a bunch of money on some fancy security technology, sure. It, it, but to me, it's almost like picking a car. You know, if, if you're, if, if for your needs and requirements, if all you need is a good Toyota Corolla, you get a Toyota Corolla. Sure. You know, sure. You can spend 500 K on a, on a Lamborghini. Uh, but if you don't need to, then you don't. And that's very similar to uh, security for, you know, for your average small mid-sized organization, you don't need to have Lamborghini style security. <laughs> that's uh, right. Just doing some of the basics, uh, making sure that you have a very uh, informed and aware um, uh, staff and strong security culture, you know, making sure that you know what basic security technologies and security hygiene you should have in place. 
often that, that, that can go a long, long way, and, and that doesn't have to cost a ton of money. But you make a really good point, Dominic. You're talking about, and we had Lindsay Meredith on with us last Sunday talking about the demise of brick-and-mortar retail and how those who are surviving have had to pivot in order to uh, really ramp up their uh, digital presence, their online profiles in order to just stay alive, let alone make a buck uh, digitally. And so uh, in the course of becoming aware of the need to be more of a digital presence uh, and they're forgetting that uh, expanding that digital presence also means expanding your your online risk so that it should it should come hand in glove with yes we need to be more visible online but when we do we need to protect ourselves with that new visibility that should be part of the package right that, that, that that's so so true uh, uh, sterling and that's that's wrapped under that broader term, which is uh, known as digital transformation, where you have many smaller organizations, which uh, their technologies are based in the, in the early 2000s, and they're needing to modernize their approaches. And again, with, with anything, if you're going to be modernizing, uh, especially in the, in the digital sense, you can't just focus on a business functionality. Uh, you need to, you know, if you're, if you're going down that road, you need to own and accept those, those risks that go alongside with it and make sure that you either address them uh, or that you just uh, own them and you know, hope for the best. <laughs> exactly. Now, just uh, before we take the break, uh, breaking that down even one step further on a personal level at, around about the New Year's, and we're always reminded by people like yourself that it's a great time of year to go through and refresh and change all of your passwords and all of that kind of stuff. It's a, a timely reminder, and it's as regular as rain. But how many how many of us do that, Dominic, on a regular basis, refresh and, and improve? our personal digital security. Uh, yeah, that, and you bring up such a good point there, Sterling. Oh, I, and it's a concept which I refer to as cyber hygiene. Uh, it's the, the digital equivalent of brushing your, brushing your teeth and washing your face, having a shower uh, uh, every day, that, that type of thing. Oh, a lot of us uh, have very poor digital hygiene. It's almost like us just brushing our teeth once a week <laughs> kind of thing. Right. And ra- rather than and sort of the current best practices, rather than focusing on always changing your passwords, there's two great practices. One is to leverage a password manager. So some, uh, that's where, rather than having to remember a bunch of different passwords or using the same password on 100 different sites, yeah. you use a password manager. My personal favorite is LastPass, and it's a, you know, free for consumers. Uh, it's almost like a password vault, and you can uh, have all your passwords auto-created uh, and they're much more secure than if you try to create them yourself. So that, that's one thing. And the other thing is to leverage what's referred to as MFA or multi-factor authentication. So that means when you log into your email or other uh, sensitive uh, websites that you, uh, rather than just having a username and password, is another form of what's referred to as authentication. So that could be either a text message that gets sent to your phone with a pin, Mm -hmm. or you leverage what's referred to as an authenticator app, apps such as Authy or Google Authenticator or Microsoft Authenticator. It's basically an extra layer of protection. So if your password gets compromised, Unless someone physically has your phone, your accounts stay safe. So those are the two things we recommend to people. Yeah, we have that here at, at the radio place with the chorus, and they have authenticators. And those of us who try to access our, our corporate stuff from outside have to go through this little process. So uh, even that it seems a corporate thing, but you can really uh, have that at a very personal level and just add an extra fence around yourself, right? Exactly. Even if you just do it for your... For your email, uh, and if you think about so many of our, uh, for, uh, for all of us, or for many of us, our lives are all in our personal uh, emails or even social media accounts. 
Uh, even if you just take the time to, to do it for those uh, accounts, that goes a long, long way for your personal online safety. Indeed. Let me take that break now, Dominic. And when we come back, we're going to talk digital passports and international vaccine certificates. Our guest is Dominic Vogel, founder and chief strategist with Cyber.sc. Time to introduce our next guest. He's always welcome on the airwaves of this program. He's the author a few years ago of a book called too dumb for democracy, why we make bad political decisions, and how we can make better ones. Our guest is David Mosgrop, who is with us today from Ottawa, where he's uh, an associate with the University of Ottawa Department of Communications. David, welcome back. Happy New Year, belatedly, and good morning. Good morning, and, and it has almost been a couple of years. Now, uh, I'm getting old. My Lord. Well, what a thing to be reminded of on a Sunday morning. Well, I know, especially this early in the day, too. Another project you're working on, this one really caught my attention, too. We just had a fascinating conversation with a cybersecurity expert named Dominic Vogel. Good guy, smart guy, knows his stuff. And one of the projects you're involved in currently is out at UBC, and you and a couple of colleagues are working on something called Digital Threats to Democracy, David. And I think it's very apropos for our conversation this morning, because the the stuff that we were going to t- we're going to talk about in terms of what happened in the United States in the past few days, uh, especially with the insurgency at the United States Capitol on Wednesday, that has its origins almost entirely on social media, doesn't it? Well, I mean, at least in, in large part, and social media is a tool of, of networking, of organization and mobilization for this stuff. I mean, that was a project I played a role in a couple of years ago, and uh, I've continued to work on that. It was led by Chris Tanov, and it's a paper that's publicly available, and people can look it up, Digital Threats to Democracy. Right. It was essentially a, a, a risk assessment of the sort of digital aspects of democratic threats, and, and this is one of them you know, radicalization and the mobilization and connection of people. Because while stuff on the internet might radicalize people, that's one of the threats. But another threat is it connects them. Sure. It makes it easier for people, these people to find one another. It makes it easier for them to mobilize once they've found one another. And of course, when you've got the president of the United States using social media to foment an insurrection, it certainly facilitates this sort of thing, too. What did you make of the events in Washington this week, based on your uh, on your analysis and your 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 seat in the theater as a political theorist? And you watched all of this go down. What was your reaction, David? Well, it was sh- it was shocking, but not surprising. Shocking in the sense that we were watching an insurrection fomented by the president of the United States play out in real time on television, and social media, and so on. So that was shocking. Mm-hmm. Not surprising, though, in the sense that this has been a very long runway that, that we have been on for years. I mean, we have seen this coming. People warned about this, including myself, repeatedly that Trump was an authoritarian, that Trump was bordering on a fascism, uh, that he was enabling and radicalizing extremists, and that this was going to have consequences. And we saw consequences from Charlottesville on down. Right. Uh, this one was shocking, but it, it, wasn't, you know, it, it wasn't surprising in the sense that we had been building towards this for a long time, and a lot of people, mostly Republicans, dismissed it or even enabled it. 
Let me quote something from a current article in in this week's edition of Time magazine. There's a deep sickness in the United States of America. Trump is not its sole cause, but he and his devoted allies are making that sickness worse. There is a long road to a cure, but it can begin by purging a seditious president from the Oval Office. And this, of course, is an article uh, in Time uh, saying that Trump must, uh, we must impeach Donald Trump again. Is that a remedy that's going to make any sense to democracy, or is it about stifling his supporters? Well, I think it ought to be done. Uh, it's certainly about stifling him. I mean, he, first of all, there has to be uh, consequences for actions. I mean, people talk about, quote-unquote, cancel culture, but what we're usually talking about is account- accountability. And if there, if there isn't accountability for this, if a president can't be impeached for leading or, or for at least fomenting an insurrection, then what is the president to be impeached for? So there's certainly the, the accountability angle. And the other angle is this. He can do a lot of damage in a short period of time. And if he's unfit to have a Twitter account, then he's certainly unfit to have nuclear code right. uh, and command of the United States Armed Forces. So uh, for, just for national security and international security, it's a good reason. And it's certainly a good reason for democracy insofar as it needs to be accountability when leaders go beyond the pale. So, uh, Mr. Biden, on the other hand, has, has taken a step back from this, uh, pointing to the fact that he has no role to play. It would be a congressional role if indeed something were to go forward. But his recommendation, David, was just basically hold your nose and hold your breath for 10 more days and it'll be over. Is that good enough? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think Biden lacks a killer instinct. This is a sort of, you know, despite the fact that we saw with the Democrats that the construction of what might have been the most progressive agenda in, in American history, uh, certainly at least on paper. The question is, can he get that done? And that's a subset question of, you know, does he have the killer instinct to, to strike when the iron is hot or mm-hmm. to do what needs to be done, even though it might not be particularly palatable? And I don't, I'm not convinced he does. And I think this is a manifestation of it. And it always gets couched in, well, we need unity. And we don't want to rock the boat and we don't want to exacerbate things. But that sort of logic lets people get away with absolutely notorious behavior and suffer very little, if any, consequences. Because it's time to heal. That's the other part of the phrase that uh, that you left off. Uh, and that's why yeah. Mr. Biden leans on a great deal and has lately considerably uh, every chance he gets. You know, it's time to heal. It's time to stop the division. He wants to start sewing up the wound. Uh, not perhaps. I mean, he understands, I think, that it's not as easy as it sounds, but you got to start somewhere. Yeah, I mean, I think you, you start by suturing it up. But if you have a group of people who keep ripping open those sutures, uh, then it's never going to heal. Yeah. And, and so the pushback is that you can't heal a wound uh, if there's a party that keeps opening it. Yeah. And when there aren't consequences for bad behavior, that party's encouraged or, or allowed to do so. And that's what happens with these extremists. Now, I mean, you're seeing some accountability insofar as people are being arrested and presumably found guilty will be jailed. Um, but uh, they're still getting signals from the top, and that's a significant problem. So uh, if if you can't punish a president for this, what can you punish a president for? Right. Uh, With the 10 days uh, window of of opportunity to get all of this done, uh, I suppose it becomes simply a functional question. Can this task be performed in such a limited time frame? Yeah, and, and at the very least, in Congress, you can put Republicans on the record 
de facto or de jure uh, as supporting Trump or not at this point, right? I mean, the questions about whether or not what you can do in the Senate, Trump's certainly unlikely to be removed. Right. Uh, but he could still be impeached in the House mm-hmm. if he's not removed by the Senate trial. And it forces everyone to be very clear about where they stand on this, either by casting a ballot or by their behavior and whether or not they facilitate or, or try to, to gum up the works. And at the very least, that ought to be done. Uh, Trump can also be censured, which would, be, uh, which would send a very clear message. So there are there are things that you can do. And, and I think those symbolic uh, measures are important, certainly important for the public record, uh, as well as for posterity. Well, Nixon was censured, was he not? I don't remember if Nixon was. Andrew Johnson was. I mean, Nixon, I mean, it was fascinating about Nixon is he would have been removed. Uh, he quit before they could fire him. Exactly. <laughs> right? No president has been impeached twice, though. Trump would be the first. And I think that's worth having on the historical record, that Trump was impeached twice. He was so utterly wretched that he was the only president in American history to be impeached twice. I think that's the least he deserves. Sterling Fox with you on this mild Sunday morning, joined by David Moskrop from Ottawa. Mr. Moskrop, a columnist with the Washington Post, a writer from McLean's, political theorist and analyst here to talk in what we're talking about the week that was. And Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.